Hi everybody, it's Tony Tonkin here and this is part of Kids Matter and this is part of a special episode that we're doing in relation to people's stories, just having a listen to interesting stories that what we could consider normal people, I guess, may have. And today with me, I have Dee. Hello Dee, how are you? Hello Tony, good thank you. And you? I'm fine. Good. Thank you very much for asking. Um, so what we'd like to do is just talk a little bit about your history and so I guess what we'll start with is your um, biological parents. Would you just tell us a little bit about what you know about them? Yes, I don't know a lot about them. I, um, my understanding is that my birth father and birth mother married when they were quite young. I understand that that was kind of a, a necessary marriage in an era when you weren't supposed to be single parents. Then kind of a shotgun shotgun wedding, I think. Um, and so they were very young. Um, and then they had a, they were working class people. Um, most of what I do know about my parents, I found out through my records from what is now the Department of Child Protection. Um, it wasn't when I first found those records. They've had several change, changes of name since then. But I guess what I found out is that by the time I was three, so I think my mother would have been about 26 by then, um, they had lost all six of their children to the state on the grounds that they had been neglecting their children. Yes, so by the time my parents were still quite young, they had a family of six children and the eldest was nine and the youngest was a baby and they both of my parents were taken to a court for the neglect of their children and um, prior to that, and not that I remember it, um, as I understand it, we were arrested and then charged with being neglected and then went to court and, was, and I was committed to a children's home. So I would have been about three years of age at the time coming up to four years of age and don't have any memory of any of that whatsoever. My first clear memory is um, is being, I have vague memories of meeting my foster parents. They went into the office, we had a couple of meetings, um, must have decided my younger sister and I were okay because they ended up taking us home with them. Um, and that's kind of my most vivid memory is the first day that I went to live with my foster parents of sitting. Well, they ranged in age from nine down to a baby. So what, was the, what was the, so the eldest was nine at the time of removal, is that what you're saying? Yes, the eldest was nine, that was a girl. Yep. That was my eldest sister. Then there were two boys. Then there was myself, um, a younger sister who was about 12 months younger and a baby who was, um, I, th I guess he was about, I don't know, yet less than a year old, about 11 months old at the time that we were arrested. Were they ever able to tell you anything about your parents? Not really. My oldest sister, um, no, not really. Not at all. I eventually, when I was about 19, met some relatives on my mother's side of the family and they told me that my mother had been raised by her grandmother. So again, this is in an era when it wasn't okay to get pregnant if you're a young woman and not be married and I think she was about 18 years of age. There's not, on her birth certificate, there's no record of a father at all. And then I, as I understand it, she was then raised by a grandmother who kind of pretended that she was her mother. So 
Um, and you have, can you tell us a little bit about why it was that you, um, or the children I guess, were um, before the courts and that you were charged with neglect? No, I can't tell you anything about what I could see in the records and that's, we were charged with neglect and that's kind of about it really. Um, I understand that the police had gone to visit my mother who was working as a cook in Hindley Street and had told um, her that she needed to get home because the children were on their own. She was expecting her husband, my father, to have been home to look after the children. Um, I suspect he was probably down the pub or somewhere like that. Um, so really that's, that's kind of about it, it was just neglect. And they were, they weren't, um, it's not just that we were arrested, my parents went to court as I understand it and were charged and went to jail for neglect of the children. Alright, okay, so the statute, so I guess what we're, I guess the suggestion is that the statute at the time, for whatever reason, uh, had the children charged with a crime for which they were not responsible. Yes, so we're talking about 19... Oh gosh, what year are we talking about? 1960, I guess. Um, and um, that practice had gone on up until the 1970s. So it had been going on for, for decades before I was born in 1956 and then didn't change until the 1970s. So children are no longer... They might be picked up by the police, but they're not arrested and they're certainly not charged and then committed to institutions now. So you were three when you were taken into foster placement. Did you have? Did you go straight to a foster placement or, or did you go elsewhere? No, I went to a um, Seaforth Children's Home for a little while. Not for very long. It was only a matter of months and I don't have strong memories of that at all. I remember, I think, looking for my sister and looking for my brother who would have been there as well. Um, but not, not. it was only a matter of months and I, I don't remember it. I don't remember any family trauma. Um, what, do you have a, do you have your first memory? Do you have a memory back to when you were three? Um, back to when I was, well, my first memory was really clearly of being picked up um, by my foster parents. Alright, uh, so as you said before, that was, so that was the first memory, you didn't have any other memories around? They're only just vague, no, siblings. no not really. I have a, a feeling of fondness towards my feeling, um, towards my sibling as a child, but not really clear memories. Um, as I said, that my clear memory, most clear memory was of going to live with my foster parents. Okay, and what was, what was that first memory? And that was of sitting in the car, and I, I, the sensation was one of excitement. I was kind of looking forward to, to, um, to this new adventure, I suppose, as a small child. Um, it did feel like a bit of an adventure. My sister, younger sister was with me. I would have been closer to four than three. Um, we went past wherever my older, my foster sister was working. So my foster parents had a, had a daughter. She would have been 16 or so at the time and was in the paid workforce. We waved to her. I don't remember where that was um, at all. And then we went home. And then I think there were neighbours who came in to visit. They had provided things like um, high chairs, which I remember not wanting to sit on a high chair. I was nearly four. I didn't need to sit on a high chair. So this was the foster parents' first foster? Kids? Yes, first and only, as I understand it. 
All right. Did you? Um, so once once you moved in, did you have your own room? Were you sharing a room with your sister? I was sharing a room with my sister. Yeah. yeah. What was that like? Well, I think that was okay. I think my memories of when I first moved in was we were probably a bit feral on reflection. And I certainly, we were expected to go and have a nap and I didn't need to have a nap in the afternoon, but I was still expected to go to my bedroom and have a nap. And I used to play up and do things and play with the Venetian blinds and break them and um, and then blame my sister and say she did it, but oh, she'd been course. she'd been asleep the whole time. Sorry, <laughs> she needed she needed the nap. I didn't need a nap. Well, she was younger. Yeah, exactly. And were you therefore kind of the mature sister? Well, I suppose so. <laughs> I'm not sure I behaved very maturely. So, um, did it, can you remember whether it took a while to settle in? Because you you would have only been I don't know if you went to kindy back then or daycare or whatever sort of care facility or did you just remember going to school? I really only remember going to school. I remember going to school to visit prior to going to school. Um, I don't remember kindergarten or anything prior to that. Um, and I guess we're talking about 1960. Um, I don't even know if they did kindergartens no, back then. Actually, <laughs> it's a really interesting question. But certainly I went to something that was called an infant school. That was in the Jeps Cross Primary School, so that was the young children's um, section of that. And what I, so what I remember is going to visit, being introduced to it, and then I remember my first day, because my foster mum didn't take me to school, I went to school with a neighbour, a, a girl who was in primary school, and then at the end of the day I had to figure out how to get myself home, so I would have been five years of age. And I remember standing, um, you know, I could go left, I could go right, or I could go straight ahead. <laughs> and I remember standing there not knowing, really quite sure. But I, I did choose to go straight ahead and that was the right direction, kept on work, walking and got home. I guess it was a bit odd for me because I wouldn't have the expectation of my own children at five to find their way home so, so it seemed an odd expectation was really. Was there an expectation do you think that was just unique to these particular foster parents? Or was I have no societal? idea. I have no idea. It could have been just a societal thing. Attitudes to children have changed enormously and we're much more protective of them now than in, back in those days even though my foster mother was largely protective. But So the, the notion I guess is that they had faith in you to be able to find your way home? Well, that's one way of looking yeah. at it. And, and I wonder how Seemed a bit careless to me. Well, I wonder how things would have been had you not been able to find your way home. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so Perhaps I was prepared, adequately prepared, so that when I had to make that decision... So they had to show you where the school was? I guess so, yes. I, I guess stuff. so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, I made it back. Things might have been different had you not been able yep. to make it back. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, okay, so um, how would you describe, do you remember how, how would you describe your foster parents up until that time? Were, like, were they caring, were they nurturing, were they considerate of you or, or were you too young to notice? I think I was really too young to notice. It wasn't long before that was home and that was my only home and whatever memories or intuitions, I suppose, that I had of my other family had largely disappeared. I do recall that we went off to visit my family, um, the rest of my family, at the Botanic Gardens. And uh, to be honest, I don't know whether this is a memory or something that's jogged by reading it f from my files, but 
what I recall is that um, that created difficulties for my foster mother, which I don't think is unusual, that when you go and see your family, um, there's some conflict develops at home. And I do recall that my elder sister, who was nine, told us that we didn't have to take any notice or do what our foster parents were telling us because they weren't our real parents. Um, and there was some concern about that. So we saw them at the park a few times, but eventually those visits sort of wore off. So can you, do you actually have memories of, memories of, of you know, visualising the rest of your siblings there, or, or are they suggestions? I'm a bit confused. Yeah, I'm a bit confused about whether they're suggestions or memories too, right. how did you know to be honest. Foster, how did you know your foster mum was, res was responding um, in, well, I guess in a negative way around meeting up with the siblings. And again, that might be a memory or it might be um, just a response from my files. But eventually she got to the point where whenever, and I can't remember how old I was, but whenever there was a request for us to meet with our father who eventually got out of jail, he wasn't in for, I don't think he was in jail for very long and wanted to see us. Then we were conveniently away at the times um, and there weren't alternative times made. So I think that it's, it's speculation, but I think my foster mother just organised things so that she wouldn't have to deal with the conflict by not having us meet up with my birth family, really. Yeah, so I guess the implication there is that she wasn't going out of her way to... Um to create a relationship. Absolute, absolutely birth. not. And I remember on one occasion she um, kind of plonked a Christmas card or a birthday card on the mantelpiece and said that was from my real grandmother. Not that I had any other grandmothers. I didn't have foster grandmothers. Um, that was from my real grandmother and um, she was going to tell the department she was upset because they had her address and she didn't think that my birth family should have it made her feel unsafe so they shouldn't have had um my her address they so shouldn't know of, so you're saying there's a sense of ownership by your foster mum over you uh, i don't know if ownership is the right word but certainly she wasn't going to share us <laughs> with anyone else well well, I guess but I, but I suppose that. that's not unusual. I don't think that's unusual in terms of what I know about foster parents because there isn't often is disruption in the foster parent home when children go and visit um, birth families. So I get all of that and she might have just been trying to avoid making her life more difficult. And it sounds like you were kind of the second family given that she, she had an other child was 16 I think yes. when you went on board so, yes. so you were like the second chance of a family for her? Oh, I think I was we were something to do <laughs> to oh. be honest. <laughs> You kept her busy. Is that well, I, well, again, this is purely speculation. I've never had that conversation with her. Like, why did she want foster kids? Was it money? Was it something to do? She was a housewife. She wasn't working. She wasn't doing paid work. She had friends who did paid work, but she didn't do paid work. She was in her 40s. Um, she had a friend who was fostering who probably encouraged her to do that. Um, yeah, like so I don't know. I've never had that conversation with her. Community service work, was it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she was community oriented, but there you go. So you, you, so you stayed within the same foster home 
until how long? How old were you? Until I was 18. Until I was over 18. And how, you know, looking back over all of those 15 years, I guess, that you spent there, um, how would you rate the, the environment, the, the fostering, the sense of home that you gathered from being there? Well, now that I am in the position of having read lots of stories about people who've been, been in foster care, then I'd have to say in many ways it was a positive experience. And that it was home, there's no doubt about it. It was absolutely home for me. Um, but there wasn't a lot of freedom. Um, and I think my foster mother was quite controlling um, in that as she did, as she manoeuvred things so that we didn't see our birth parents. And I should say though, that my birth mother disappeared. Nobody saw her. So really it was my birth father that she was stopping access to. And eventually what he did was sign adoption papers, but she, they never adopted us, um, my foster parents. And I, I would have quite liked to have been adopted, but, and I can't remember her, re she did talk about that. She said maybe they were too old and they weren't allowed to adopt us. All right, so so they were well into their forties. There was a discussion. There was a discussion, yeah, at some point. So, in many ways, because it was a stable environment, it, um, and it, uh, and it allowed me to go to one primary school, and I loved school, and um, one high school. So it was very stable. So unlike lots of foster kids, I wasn't in and out of foster care placements. Yeah, you were fortunate. I was fortunate in that sense. way. Um, you don't talk much about your foster father. Oh, he was a 1950s absent dad. <laughs> he really wasn't. He was, a, you know, my memories are very fond that he was a good man. He was largely absent. He went to work at 7.30 in the morning. He came home at 5.30. His presence was there to invoke punishment. So you wait till your father gets home. Again, not unusual for those times. Um, I have one vivid memory of being very small and of him being called upon to punish me for something and him standing over the bed and whipping out his belt, whipping off his belt, I should say. And, and I, I can't remember whether he belted me or not, but he really wasn't violent. I have that one memory, but no others, so I don't remember him as a violent man. I think he was probably a gambler. He liked his football. He was probably an annoying husband, but as a foster father, he was fine. Did, um, did, did the foster parents entertain you? Did they play games with you? Did they... Dad did. Yeah. Dad, I called my foster parents mum and dad. And dad did. I remember playing cards with him. Right. don't remember doing that with mum, no. What, sort of, what are the primary memories around the home with your mum, foster mum? Uh, with my foster mum, probably, you know, when, when I was older, standing in the kitchen and talking when she was cooking. There was sort of a few shared moments there when we did that sort of thing. Um, I, th I think she was fundamentally a good woman, but she was also a bit cruel, so she was often very unkind. So if you didn't have any interactions necessarily or, um, with the foster parents, how did you entertain yourself? Oh, I read. <laughs> I played with my sister. Um, we would have played with each other. But where, but where my what I was going to say was that my foster mother was very controlling. So we weren't allowed to go visit f school friends. I always had friends at school, but I wasn't allowed to go visit school friends except on one or two very rare occasions and until I got much older as a teenager. Um, 
and she didn't allow friends to come home except I can remember one friend in 15 years coming home and that again was when I was in my teenage years. Have you a sense as to why that was the case for her? I well, I don't know where. She, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. These days, we'd consider that quite a. It'd be about unusual, wouldn't it? These days. Um, well, it would have been. Un, it it would have been unusual in those days because kids had a quite a lot of freedom, mm -hmm. um, or at least boy children did. Um, I but I had I no. And mates around, and I mean, we, we were very communal. Yeah, yeah. No, none of that. We did have kids stay over, but that was mostly. There were some kids at the back of the house, and we used to, you know, not play with them, but talk to them over the friends and probably annoy them. Um, we ha always we had to look after. There was a sense of having to look after, and, and largely that was me because of the being the eldest. But my mum's very good friend had fostered first and then adopted a girl who was about the same age as me. And then she did paid work. She used to work for Myers, I think, and other paid work. And then we often had to look after her, which meant that um, me and my sister had to look after her, really, look and entertain her, look, look after their, by then, probably adopted child. Yeah, so that was kind of... And occasionally there would be cousins or whatever, but they were mostly older. So you, you, okay, so you had this regular family, I guess, even though it was a foster family, but it was a family, and uh, you moseyed on until you were 18, and then did you make a decision to leave, or was that decision made for you? No, I made the decision to leave, but it was in the context of quite a lot of conflict. So by then, I was working, I'd uh, finished school. I think one of the positive things that I still need to explore a bit is that unusually for the age, I was allowed to finish school, so to go through to matriculation. And I don't recall understanding that that would have involved any cost for my foster parents or whether they were still receiving money. So there wasn't a sense they encouraged you to stay at school? You never, discu school? never discouraged me never encouraged me but okay, never discouraged me either so I was able to stay on at school so and as I say I think I was unusual so I did go through to um, to matriculation and my birthday's in March so I would have finished school by the time I had turned 18. That summer when I finished school I got a job in a, a um, it was very quite important actually it was a radiator workshop where they made radiators for something <laughs> actually really no one well, no I don't think there were whether they were for water systems or something like that I don't really recall um, anyway I got a job there and I ended up deciding um, and and then I made and I made I worked with men and I they would sometimes go out and I would go out with them I don't know we'd go down the pub or we'd go to the boxing or the wrestling weird things that they did but I would go along as one of the team and then I would get into a lot of trouble with my mum for being out late um, she called me a slut and all sorts of horrible names and I wasn't up to much mischief um, and so I think she's I don't know she seemed to want to c keep control of me and obviously I didn't like that and I was in an environment where I was being encouraged to do more than just stay at home. So, um, and I had this wonderful offer from my boss uh, 
who said, look, who knew that things were difficult at home and who said, if you ever need a place to stay, come and stay here. But now, by that time, I knew that family reasonably well because I looked after their... I babysit. I babysat their two small children. And so one night I rang him and they, he was having a dinner party, but he still came over and collected me and I stayed with them for about six weeks. And then one night Jeff very gently said, look, I think it's time for you to go. And that was, I think it was uh, the right thing to do. But it was very kind and he helped me find a place over at North Adelaide. Um, and I think I stayed working for him for a little while, but then got other administration work. With that was in the days where it was very easy to walk out and get work. And I had, um, through school, done a commercial course, so I had lots of admin skills. So did you talk to your foster parents about leaving and what that meant? No, not at all. I remember my foster dad came into the office one day at work and said, look, you know, um, don't leave it too long before you contact your mum, like I had to contact her. And, um, you know, she will want to help out. And I guess her way of helping out was to do material things like bring curtains and things like that. So I did maintain a relationship with them for, for many years. My dad died when I was... 19, but I maintained a relationship with my foster mum up until my eldest daughter was born, up until I was about 27, 28. So you you left the foster home and you had this job working in this radiator place and uh, and did that continue for very long? What was the next step? I can't remember exactly what my next step was. I got an offer to go to Flinders University but deferred it and I just took up, um, yeah, I can't remember where I was working, but I was working in an office somewhere. At some point, I ended up working for the Industrial Design Council of um, South Australia. It was a time, as I said, when it was really easy to just walk out of one job and walk into another job. And um, it was at the Industrial Design Centre um, where, they t where they held regular meetings, and I was a receptionist there. And that was where I met um, my eldest daughter's father, actually. I was about 19 at the time. And so you, so when you met with your eldest father, obviously you lived with him for a while? Yeah, eventually. Eventually he was married when I first met him and when we first had a relationship and I went to work for him. He was a scientist. He had his own, he had his own business. So I went and, so it was all office work, sort of administration type work. So I went and worked for him for a while. I tried university, um, dropped down after about 18 months. Um, and then he strongly encouraged me to go work for IBM. And um, I did. I went and worked for them for about 10 years. Right, and what was that experience like? Well, that was very positive. Um, I might see them differently now, but they were a, a you know, big American corporation. They had good pay, good working conditions. Um, they didn't want you to be a part of a union. That was very clear in their working conditions statement. Um, but it, it, was, it was a good opportunity for me, really. I gained a lot of confidence. You, yeah, so that helped you, your self-esteem. Yeah, you were, yeah. Bit better with the world, maybe. Yep, yep, yeah. I think I recognised. I don't. Re I don't think I had the language to realise that I'd come from a working class environment and I was now in a very middle class environment. I didn't have that language, um, and perhaps if I'd gone to uni, I would have. Um, but I did try to adapt, I guess, to the middle class environment and was able to, and therefore um, fitted in. And it turned um, 
terms of good, I guess, took part in your life at some point because you did go back to university. Yes, I did. I had kind of a midlife crisis at the grand old age of 33 <laughs> where I left um, my daughter's father and was a single mum for about 18 months. And once I'd left him, it kind of like work had no meaning for me either. So it really was a bit of a, a bit of a crisis. And so I, I left IBM, which was financially a very silly thing to do because I had a, a well-paid, stable job. And I think they'd gone through some restructure in the next 18 months, so I even missed out on some redundancy payment. Um, but after, yes, after struggling for a little bit financially, then I went to university and, um, and then I had two more children and sort of combined study with raising children and did that slowly because I wasn't always, you know, I just did part-time study over the years. So, and where did you go with in relation to your studies? So... So I finished off a Bachelor of Arts degree yep. that I'd begun when I was 21 and then I dropped out after 18 months. So I picked that up again when I was 35 and pregnant with my son, who's now 28. Um, and then I gradually, I did that in bits and pieces and eventually finished that and went off and did a Bachelor of Theology degree. Um, and I, again, I was, I was always studying part-time um, and then I did... Um, an honours degree, I got first class honours in theology, that was at, through Flinders University and I'd initially been studying at Adelaide University and then I went on and did a, a, um, a PhD in theology as well and I got a scholarship for that so that helped with some funding. And then academia took over for you? Well in there, yeah, then I just, um, once I went back I didn't leave. Right. I started teaching in about 2003. By then I was in my 40s. I was 47 when I started teaching and I started teaching in women's studies up at uh, Flinders University. They ran a, um, a program in what's called the foundation course at Flinders. So a preparatory course for people interested in going on to, to university studies, but people who would be already in the workplace largely. And so I ran that for a number of years. And uh, 2008, I, at the end of 2008, I graduated from my PhD. At one point, I had work across the three universities, so Flinders University of South Australia, where I was teaching in comparative religion, women's studies at Flinders University, and then I joined the gender studies department at the University of Adelaide. And in 2011, had a, my first fixed-term contract there, and it, then in about 2014, I had a uh, continuing position. So, and, and your academic life has sort of co-joined, if you like, or, or has a relationship with your past too, doesn't it? It does now. It didn't start out that way. So I didn't do a PhD on foster care. I did a PhD on a very obscure woman-founded 19th century Christian denomination. Um, but then I had the opportunity at the end of 2012 to apply with a co colleague who really wrote the grant. We had the opportunity to apply for a grant to do a history of foster care in Australia, a national history, which had never been done. So while there had been lots of studies done, lots of inquiries, many, many inquiries over years, most of the inquiries into child welfare had really focused on children in institutions. 
and they had paid far less attention, if any attention at all, to foster care. And so that's what we decided that we would do. We would look at foster care. And so we did get funding. As I said, Neil um, mostly wrote that application and it was very fortuitous for me. But that was the first time really that my academic life and my um, childcare kind of came together even though I had started writing about my childhood a bit earlier. So do you think your, your foster experiences enhanced your academic work in this area? Yes, it gives me a lot of empathy with other people who'd been through the system, but as I said, it also made me very aware that many, many people had had. Um, I guess it made me aware that when it comes to foster care and out-of-home care, that there's kind of a spectrum, as I guess there is in all areas of life. So some people's experiences are totally brutalising, and I met some people who had horrendous experiences and I could only admire them for surviving. Um, they were, it was just amazing that they'd survived. And then to the other extreme where at the top end I found some people that had really positive experiences um, and, and kind of there's everything in between. So there isn't one story I guess about foster care, there is this vast spectrum of foster care experiences. And I believe that this has resulted in you formulating a blog. Yes, I do have a blog now. I have a blog, but that was, it kind of, um, I guess by the time I got to the end of the foster care uh, project and we did write uh, the first and only so far national history of foster care in Australia. So there'd been other histories, but they were at state levels. So this was the first national history. Um, but on my way through over the years, as I was listening to lots of stories and doing um, research, became very interested in um, people who'd been in out of home care and who'd gone to university and. I was one of the first in Australia who started to talk about that here. It had been talked about in the United Kingdom for you know 20 years prior, but we'd never asked the question in Australia, like how many people who've been in out-of-home care go on to university. So I became very interested in that, but I became um, also disillusioned and eventually quite cross because the dominant narrative around people in out-of-home care, and it's a narrative I've used myself, so I'm th sympathetic, and it's a narrative that's used by people who are advocating for better support for out-of-home care, so I'm sympathetic to it. But the narrative is around deficits. The nar uh, mostly the research looks up to people, uh, looks to people, does research up uh, on people up to the age of 25, so young people, and it the figures tend to show um, that young people up to the age of 25 um, are very dominant in the homeless population, um, the prison population, the mentally ill population. There's a lot. There's not a lot of research that looks at the life course of people who've been in out-of-home care. So I don't dispute the figures. We absolutely need to be providing better support for young people coming out of home care. And there isn't the... Um, you know, as I said, I was able to just leave a job, walk into another job back 
in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s. It's not like that now. So we end up with a lot of people who've been in out of home care who are unemployed. So I don't dispute the figures, but I get very tired of that narrative being the only narrative we hear that people in our, who've been in out of home care are kind of um, the losers, which I bracket. Um, they're the ones who aren't doing very well in life. Now, I know very well that the system was never set up to intend for them to do very well. The system was set up to have them go out and be the workers, really, to, you know, in the old days, go out and be the labourers if they were boys and the domestic servants if they were girls. So the system was never intended for them to do particularly well. But through my research, I found that a lot of people did um, end up making contributions, I guess I'm, I'm thinking there of making contributions to their communities and that might be as simple as having children, becoming activists for improving the child welfare system or becoming quite prominent people. So I have been blogging set of people who've been in out of home care, not necessarily in the statutory system because as part of my research I found lots of people who've been out of home care but haven't been through the government system at all. They've been all that's been organised through their families, um, and so that's what I'm working on at the moment. So you seem to be saying that there are there are um, there are certainly opportunities, as you have demonstrated, to to you know grasp the opportunities I guess that sit within academia and in study and, and education, um, but. Um, those those opportunities are kind of limited for a lot of people. They can be limited and where people don't do very well often you'll find that they've been extraordinarily traumatised and brutalised as children so not everybody is able to take up opportunities but that doesn't mean that they don't make some sort of contribution to their communities and some people who might not be as well educated as me might have gone on and done other things like raise a family um, you know, or, or done something as local. I was reading about a man last week, for example, who was a member of his local RSL, and so he was involved in that. So it's not like he didn't make a, a contribution to the community. Oh, so as we conclude this discussion with Deidre, um, I have one final question that I wish to ask you, and I don't know how difficult it will be for you to, to answer because you haven't I haven't informed you as to what it would be, but um, if you were to look over your life as a from a foster kid through to having a family, plus eventually becoming a uh, an academic in an area which does involve analysing and assessing uh, foster, the foster system and child protection, I guess to some extent. Um, what would be the a primary lesson that's come from the way your life has unfolded? Yes, you're right. I don't know how to answer that. A primary lesson. Um, a primary lesson. Um, I guess I would think that stability for children is really important, but that doesn't mean to say that I didn't have a lot of issues with having been in foster care because there was certainly a great deal of grief for me, a great deal of grief in losing my family, which I didn't recognise until that midlife crisis I was telling you about when I was in my 30s. And that was when I first recognised that grief and how that grief was unrecognised grief had caused me a lot of depression over the years. So I think stability is a very good thing, but I think losing your family is a very devastating thing. Um, and I guess we all lose members of our families at some point. So. 
Um, but, you know, I lost my family very young. And I don't know that the world recognises uh, yet, there would be some pockets of the community who do, uh, the cost of that to the people who lose their families so young. It's different these days where there is at least more attempt to keep some sort of access going with, with birth families. In my days, um, yeah, they didn't try too hard at that at all, so they didn't recognise the importance. Um, so I'm sure that a lot of kids who go into foster care are grieving the loss of their family, and that's not as widely recognised as it is. Thanks, Dee, and thanks for being with me today on this, uh, the first of many podcasts uh, which are analysing and having a look at uh, people's stories to demonstrate that people have got normal lives but they have extraordinary stories to tell so thanks everybody for being with us today we'll catch you next time